Turn in your Bibles to Romans 6. Romans 6, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self, old man, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so... Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Be with us now. Give me utterance by your spirit to preach the word to us that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You, You can be seated. 
Now, this is a one-off sermon, right? This is not a sermon uh, series through Romans. We're just dropping into chapter 6. And I chose chapter 6 because it is about sanctification, which is the doctrine of holiness. Paul just finished explaining justification and its fruits in chapters 3 through 5, right? Romans 3 to 5, it's all about justification. Well, now he moves to sanctification. And I chose this passage because there are three kinds of people I have in mind here who I believe need to hear this sermon. We all need to hear it, but especially three kinds of people. The first type of person is the Christian who's become complacent with their sanctification. The complacent Christian is someone who's comfortable with the level of holiness that you've reached. You've begun coasting. You think that you're doing pretty well. You're not as bad as you used to be. There's not an habitual sin that you deal with. And so you think, I've got this. You know, I'm as holy as I really need to be. And this is actually not a good place to be. Because to be complacent is to have a low view of God's holiness. We would never say that we have a low view of God's holiness. But we actually live like it. When we think, I'm doing fine. I don't need to go any higher. And so we forget that Jesus was holy, undefiled, and blameless, and that the standard we're to be conformed to is him, perfection. Are you perfect yet? Have you reached this? Well, no, right? You've not. So you have sins you still need to kill. You have work to do. This doesn't stop till we're glorified either at death or when Jesus returns. So the only way to go is up. The second person I have in mind is the Christian who knows God's law, loves God's law, wants to be holy and to obey God, but struggles immensely with a sin. You have an habitual sin. It's like you're stuck in a loop, and it's tormenting you. You get up, you read God's word, you pray to him, you want to be holy, And then you go on throughout the day, and then when a temptation comes, you give in to it. You don't want to, but you do. So then you confess the sin, you're sorrowful for it, and you feel awful about it, and you go to bed that way. And then the next morning you get up, you want to be holy, you pray to God, you ask God to help you, but then temptation comes and you give in again. You go to bed sorrowful and all this, and it goes on and on and on. And it comes to the point where you finally go, am I even a Christian? How can I be saved? If I keep going back to this sin, I don't want to sin. Why do I keep doing this? Well, this sermon's for you, okay? I'm not saying that after today, your fight with sin will be over. And I'm not saying that your habitual sin will suddenly just go away. But if I do my job right today, this sermon will be helpful to you. And the third person I have in mind is the person who actually doesn't even care about holiness. Because you're unable to care about it. Because your heart has not been changed. You're the old man who is under the dominion of sin. You're a slave of sin. You live in the lusts of your flesh and indulge the desires of your flesh and of your mind. And you are still by nature a child of wrath. You need to be set free from sin. 
And that only comes by believing on the Son of God by faith. And so you need to come to Christ. Because everything I'm about to preach will not apply to you. Because you're still dead in sin. And you've not been made alive. And I actually have one more person in mind, which is, you could say it's the fourth person. This is the person who's actually doing well in pursuing sanctification. Okay, you're actually doing well. You're a godly person. You would not put yourself in this category, though, because unlike the rest of us, you're humble. You know your sins, and you confess them, and all you want to do is be more and more like Christ. And you're an example to the rest of us. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's probably not many of us. Maybe. But that's the person we really need to be. So Romans 6. Romans 6 is a wonderful passage. It's a potent passage. There's a lot of meat on this bone that we got to chew. There are two concepts and things that we need to understand so that we can understand this passage. Okay? I need to go through these two concepts. The first one is the indicative imperative paradigm. There's three fancy words for you. Okay? Indicatives imperatives. What are those? All throughout this passage, Paul is either going to give an indicative, which is just where he simply points something out. He just says, this is what is real. This is true. It's not a command. He just says, this is the way it is. It's a statement. But Paul also will give imperatives, commands. This is where he tells us what we're supposed to do. There are a lot of indicatives in Romans 6 where Paul simply points things out. He tells us what's true about us as Christians. Okay, verse 3. All of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. Okay, it's a statement. We have been buried with him. We have become united with him. Our old self was crucified with him. We have died with Christ. These are not commands. Paul is simply telling us what has happened to us. The first imperative, the first command, isn't until verse 11, which is consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now I point this out because in order to understand this passage, we must understand that the indicatives underlie the imperatives. What we're supposed to do is based on what God has already done for us. You need to understand what God has already done for you so that you know what you are now supposed to do. Okay? What has God already done for us? Well, he's united us to Christ. This is that second concept we must understand. Union with Christ. Our union with Christ is the major indicative, the major statement of fact that's in Romans 6. Okay, verse 3. All of us who have been baptized into Christ, baptized into his death. Verse 4. We have been buried with him. We become united with him in the likeness of his death. Our old self was crucified with him. This is all union with Christ. What does it mean to be united with Christ? 
Union with Christ simply means salvation. Now, buckle up here. I know, what time is it? It's 11.20. Buckle up. Just stick with me for a second, okay? Union with Christ. There are multiple parts of our salvation that we experience. There's justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. These are all part of our union with Christ. They're not just a bunch of puzzle pieces that we just put together. They're all organically connected. And they're all given to the Christian when salvation's applied to him. When you're regenerated, you exercise faith, you are at once united to Christ. And you receive those gifts. They're given to you. Some of the gifts you experience now. Okay? Other of those gifts you will experience later. You've been justified now. You're made right with God now. Declared righteous. You're not going to be justified again. Justified now. You've been adopted. You're a son of God now. And God is your father now. You've also been sanctified, set apart by the Spirit as holy. But you still need to be sanctified, pursue sanctification. Okay? And then one day, none of us have experienced this, but one day we'll be glorified. But all these gifts come to us by being united to Christ. Okay. Now, what is the nature of this union? We've heard about union with Christ. Well, but how are we united? How does, what does that look like? All right? For one thing, we're not brought into the Godhead. We don't become God. We're not another person in the Trinity. Okay? That's not what this means. The nature of our union is, for one, it's covenantal. Okay? In Adam, we all died. In Christ, we're all made alive. You need a new covenantal head. Sin comes from being united to Adam, but righteousness comes from being united to Christ. Our union is also spiritual. It has to do with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one who unites us to Christ by dwelling in us. He makes his abode in us. We abide in him and he in us. Okay? Spiritual. And lastly, it's mystical. It's mysterious. It's vital. We're united to God in a mysterious way. What does Paul say in Ephesians 5? He compares it with marriage. This mystery is great. I speak of Christ and of the church. Okay? Our union with Christ is mystical. It's one of the highest mysteries. So we need to contemplate this. I'm going to read a quote from Lloyd-Jones just to push this a little bit further. This is something that was taught by our Lord himself. I am the vine, you are the branches. The union between the branches and the vine is not mechanical. It is vital and organic. They are bound together. The same sap, the same life is in the stalk as in the branches. But that is not the only illustration used. In Ephesians, Paul says that the union between a Christian and the Lord Jesus Christ is comparable to the union of the various parts of the body and the whole body. 
and especially with the head. Now, any one of my fingers is a vital part of my body. It's not simply tied on. There's a living, organic, vital union. The blood that flows through my head flows through my fingers. Okay? This is a mystical union, and it's vital. Okay, those are the two concepts. Indicative imperatives, union with Christ. We need to keep these in mind when we come to Romans 6. The indicatives and imperatives, the indicatives, remember, says what's true about us. The imperatives tell us what to do. And then union with Christ is how we're sanctified. Only those who are united to Christ can be sanctified. And we are united to Christ at the moment God regenerates us. Now, Romans 6. Paul starts this chapter off by arguing against the false idea that it doesn't matter if we go on sinning after being justified. Verse 1, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. No. Dummy. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, Christians have been saved not to continue sinning, but to be holy, to be made like Christ. But notice what he says. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? This is the fundamental premise of the entire chapter. Christians have died to sin. This is the indicative, not the imperative. You're not commanded to die to sin. You are already dead to it if you're a Christian. To be dead to sin means to be translated from one realm or sphere to another realm or sphere. This happened the moment we were united to Christ. Once we lived in the realm of sin, but now we live in the realm of righteousness, holiness, and godliness. Verses 3 to 5, Paul then points out that this is what our baptism signifies. We're united to him in baptism, into his death and resurrection with Christ. Now, just because you're baptized doesn't mean you're actually united to Christ. Baptism is the sign. You need what baptism signifies. Okay. Young people who've been baptized... Your baptism will only do you good if you've received what it signifies. You need to be sure you're united to Christ. That same rule goes to all of us. Okay, the reason we're dead to sin is because our old man was crucified with Christ. Verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self, old man, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who died is freed from sin. What or who is this old man? Well, the old man is the old self, the unregenerate man in his entirety. It's what you were before Christ saved you. The old man is enslaved to sin. He hates Christ, hates the law, wants nothing to do with God, thinks he can justify himself, thinks he's fine. But since we're united to Christ in his death, our old man was crucified with him. 
The old man is now no longer alive. He's been crucified. This is very important. Short quote from John Murray. Anything John Murray writes, get it and read it. Okay? Murray, the old man who's the old man has been put to death just as decisively as Christ died upon the cursed tree. To suppose that the old man has been crucified and still lives or has been raised again from this death is to contradict the obvious force of the import of crucifixion. Exegetically speaking, you can't get around this. That's what he's saying. The old man is dead. If you're united to Christ, old man's dead. Now, I know what you're thinking, but I still sin. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? This is, this is the key. The old man is not indwelling sin. You still have indwelling sin. Your old man is crucified, but you still have sins you must mortify. And we'll get to that very soon. But this fact must first be understood. Your old man is dead. He's not alive. He was crucified with Christ. When you see the cross, you should see yourself hanging there with Christ. I, Matt Shiflet, died with Christ. My old man is dead. Old Matt is dead. He's on that tree. New Matt is alive. He's in Christ. And my life is hidden with Christ in heaven. That's what you should think. Because it's true. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, this is the first imperative Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the first command we receive here. Verse 11, as I said, first imperative. Paul told us the facts. Now he tells us what to do with these facts. Consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Paul doesn't tell us, kill your old man. Or become dead to sin and alive to God. These are presupposed. We're not even considering these facts. Doesn't even uh, make them become facts. They're facts. If you're in Christ, you're supposed to now consider yourself dead to sin. And we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God because it's true. It's our reality. If you believe on Jesus, you are dead to sin and alive to God. I know you have sins. And I know some of you feel like you are not a Christian because of your terrible battle with your sin. But ask yourself this. Do you hate your sins? I'm not asking you, do you kill your sins? I'm asking, do you know it's wrong and hate that you sin? Do you delight in the law of God? Do you love God and want to be free from sin? Do you believe on his son and love his word? If that's true, then you have to take hope. Okay. 
You are a Christian because Christians hate their sin. Unbelievers don't care about their sin. But if you do, that's proof God has united himself to you. So again, you must consider yourself to be dead to sin. You need to understand this. We live in two, in between two worlds right now. You're not your old man. He's dead. And you're not in your glorified state. That hasn't happened yet. You're in between. You're in the already but not yet. You are a new man. You're united to Christ. And the Spirit of God dwells in you. But you have indwelling sin that needs to be mortified. And this indwelling sin is a contradiction of all that you are as a regenerate person and son of God. Every Christian has some degree of indwelling sin. Every Christian is a walking contradiction to some degree. Because we've not yet been glorified. There is a presence of sin in you as a believer. And this is a conflict in your heart and life. Christians have a conflict with sin. There's a war going on, a battle. Some have a greater degree of conflict than others. But every Christian has this conflict. And if you don't experience this conflict, if you don't feel the tension of, I'm a Christian, I'm a new man, but I've got sin that I have to keep killing. If you don't experience that, it's a good tell that you're not a Christian. But if you have this conflict, take hope. You have good reason to believe. I'm united to Christ. I know Christ. His spirit is in me and he testifies. He tells me I'm a son of God. And I must press on and kill these sins. Here's another way to put this to help you understand what we're, where, uh, where we're at right now, okay? Your old man was only able to sin, but now as the new man, you are able not to sin. In the future glorified state, you will not be able to sin. You'll never sin again in heaven. Okay? Old man, only able to sin. New man, you're now able not to sin. In the future state, you will never sin. You're not able to sin. You're in between the two worlds. You're not the old man, but in the, and you're not in the glorified state. You're a new man who's fighting and dwelling sin. So back to Romans 6. Trust me, we're going to make it to lunch, okay? I won't go too long. Romans 6, verse 12. These are, now, these are imperatives. These are commands. Listen to them. Therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For, here's the indicative, here's what's true. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Listen to the full force of God's word here. Because sin does not have dominion, because it's not our master, we do not have to obey its lusts. Sin does not have dominion over you. 
This is the reality. Let not sin reign. That's the command. Okay? We're commanded, and what we're commanded, we must do. Sin doesn't have dominion, so don't let it reign. Now, let me give you an illustration because this is what Paul does for almost the rest of the entire chapter. He's been talking about slaves, masters. He's using this. He says, I'm speaking in human terms, okay? I'm using this because it's hard to understand spiritual reality, so I'm using an analogy. Okay, here's the analogy in modern parlance, right? You've worked at Burger King for a long time. You wear their uniform, clock in every day, make burgers in the back, and obey everything your boss tells you to do. Mop the floor, make me two number twos, restart the milkshake machine, clean the toilets. And you do it because you work for Burger King. Well, one day a man comes in and says, I want you to work for me. There's better pay, better hours, way better food. Come on over to Zaxby's. I've got your uniform ready and all. So you leave Burger King, okay? You say, I'm going to take you up on this offer. You leave Burger King, take off that uniform, put on the Zaxby's uniform, and you start working for your new boss at a much better job. <laughs> well, one day your old boss from Burger King comes into Zaxby's where you work, sees you and says, hey, what are you doing here? You work for me. Make me a Whopper right now. You would be insane to listen to him, wouldn't you? I mean, you don't even have the material to make a Whopper. You're in a new realm. You're at Zaxby's with a new uniform and a new boss. And you like this boss. This is what Paul is saying. We're not slaves today. We're employees. So the analogy isn't as close. But you get the picture, right? If you're a slave and you've been purchased by a new master... You would be a fool to listen to your old master if you saw him in the street. You're not his slave anymore. It would dishonor your new master if you went along and obeyed your old master. You don't belong to him. The same is true of us regarding sin. We have a new boss, a new master, Jesus. We belong to him. We work for him. We are united to him. When the lusts of our flesh rise up within us, when our indwelling sin comes a-knocking at the door, we have the power to say, no. I don't work for you. See the uniform? I've been baptized into Christ. I will not listen to you. This is what Paul is saying. This is how we're to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness. The lusts of our flesh do not have power over us. If you're a Christian, the lusts of your flesh do not have power over you. You don't work for them anymore. You work for Christ. This is your reality. You must consider yourself dead to sin. You're dead to sin. When you're tempted to look at pornography, you have the power to say no. When you're tempted to steal something, you have the power to say no. You're now able to say no. When you're tempted to not wash your wife with the word, you have the power to say no. When you're tempted to not submit to your husband, when you're tempted with homosexual desires, 
when you're tempted to overeat, when you're tempted to be lazy or to smoke cigarettes, and you're trying to break that habit. You have the power to say no when you come to church, and when you're tempted not to come to church. You have the power to say no when you're tempted to disobey your parents or to not discipline your children, when you're tempted to lie and to cheat or to watch a filthy movie, or when you are tempted to not read your Bible, to not pursue God, to not seek his face, to not flee from idolatry, you have the power to say no. You are a new man. You belong to Christ. You don't work for sin anymore. He's not your master. You have to get that. And really, why should we want to give in to sin anyway? Right? Verse 21. What benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. All those lusts, they only lead to death. That's the fruit that they bear. But what's the fruit of sanctification? But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, the fruit, which is resulting in sanctification and the outcome Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If we give ourselves to sanctification, the outcome is eternal life. Paul isn't saying we can earn salvation by our good works, because eternal life is, what does he say? It's a free gift of God. What's he saying? What he's saying is we bear fruit because it's who we are. True Christians derive their benefit, bear fruit, because they're free from sin. You've been freed from sin so you can bear fruit. So bear fruit. Pursue sanctification. In conclusion, if you need to pursue sanctification. If you're complacent with your sanctification, don't be surprised if your sin starts killing you. You need to be killing your sins. How do you know what your sins are? God reveals them to you through his word, through his law, by the law being preached to us. The law is good and holy, and we need to be conformed to it. If you're the tormented Christian who's battling your indwelling sin and you feel like you're losing that battle and are tempted to give up, don't give up. I can't see your heart. But if there's a conflict in you between sin and righteousness, between obeying the old master and obeying your new master, then take hope. You have hope. Don't give up. Remember, this conflict in you is proof that you're united to Christ. He's your new master. It doesn't matter how often you have gone back to the old master and obeyed him. Your new master is merciful. He knows there's a conflict in you because he caused that conflict in you. So obey him. Turn from your sins. Do whatever it takes to fight your sins. Cut off the arm. 
If that's the answer, cut off the arm. Of course, the answer isn't cut off the arm. It's a change of heart. It's go to Christ. Confess your sins. Remember, you have Christ Church here to help you. Don't do this alone either. And finally, if you've just listened to this sermon, and you don't feel any conflict in yourself between sin and righteousness, then you need to fear for your soul. Christians hate their sin. Unbelievers do not care about their sin because they love their sin. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. You must come to Christ. Escape the wrath of God that you rightfully deserve. Obey the Son and receive eternal life. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you've sent Christ, that he died on the cross, and that we, by virtue of our union with him, were united to him, and that we died there with him. Be merciful to us, O Lord, and convict us of our sins that we would confess them to you and run from them and mortify them. Lord, be merciful to your people. Help us to not fall into despair, but to call out to you, to say, wretched man that I am, who shall free me from this body of sin? But thanks be to God in our Lord Jesus Christ. In your holy name we pray. Amen.